sorry, everyone. Uh, we were trying to go live on LinkedIn. It didn't work. But uh, that's why we spent like another two minutes right now in order to kind of figure this out. Sorry for that. So welcome to uh, GTN Live. Uh, today, Ola and I are going to talk about hacking NRR. Um, and uh, you know what? We will have a kind of a good conversation. I'll have some layups for maybe Ola for to either kind of answer the way I want them to. Or, or maybe I disagree with you. Let's see about that. Uh, so we we uh, actually so if you if you see this on the stream, Olafur is having a beer here. I also have a beer here. So uh, this is the Danish Danish culture that we're introducing here to uh, to the world, I guess. But uh, let's dive in. Um, by the way, next week before we dive in, by the way, next week we're actually going to talk about forecasting. So sales forecasting specifically, similar setup. Let's kind of go about this actually. Um, starting up. So net retention rate, um, very much in everyone's minds. Everyone is talking about it, super important. Um, today, you know, instead of talking about uh, super high quality ways of how to, you know, increase your net retention rate, which is also a topic we could be spending probably an hour or so on kind of chatting about, we wanted to talk about something that is a little bit less, um, well, it's sustainable to a degree, but it's more of a trickery in it, and uh, and you can you know disagree or agree with this or kind of like it or not like it. But really, how could you? How can you hack net retention rate? I think you can hack any any metric that's out there, and we're not talking about gaming it. Maybe maybe a little bit gaming it, right? But being being uh, conscious of how can you push this thing up. So why why would you even do that? Well, it's a lot of people are paying a lot of attention to it right now, right? And especially um, investors are looking at this right now. Um, you know, every company that wants to be super efficient is looking at it right now and so forth, right? Um, one item here to kind of maybe highlight is, first of all, maybe for some people that kind of don't know this, what is net retention rate? Uh, so it's really how much is your base growing without you adding new additional customers in it, right? Kind of how is your existing customer base growing over time and you subtract churn from it and you add upsell to it, right? Kind of is, I mean, let's just level set here for a second. That's basically what it is. Yeah, gross retention rate <clears throat> is basically factoring in churn. So how much did you start out with? How much did you end up with? And mm -hmm. what is the percentage that you retained out of that revenue? And the net retention rate or NRR is the inclusion of upsell. So yeah. what do you end up on a net basis at the end of the period from that existing client base? And you really wanna be above 100%. That means you retain uh, you will lose some, you know, gross retention rate cannot never be more than 100%, obviously, but net retention rate can. So you obviously will lose some here and there. The question is, can you make up for that gap by growing your existing customer base, right? The current benchmark or the benchmark so far has been around 105%. Obviously, that differs a lot between your different uh, uh, segments and so forth, right? Your, uh, your SMB will churn a lot more than your enterprise potentially. Um, I think an interesting tidbit here is that um, Winning by Design recently talked about, uh, you know, updating those benchmarks and they found that actually it's, uh, you know, um, I think 10% lower. So I'm not sure if this takes everyone below the 100%, but people have been hit with like high churn numbers, right? Yeah, I think there was uh, it was 105 and then it's, uh, I think the latest number was that it was around 100. So I think yeah. to date it is still within the 5% uh, drop. So that's that's obviously massive. I think they also talked about um, you know the current period as um, a massive churn event, kind of the largest churn event across the industry, um, and this is where some of those numbers are coming from. However, 
there are a couple of companies um, that are able to hit 150% and above, right? Um, the the standard topic or the standard example that comes to mind is Snowflake. Everyone seems to does. I, I think everyone knows Snowflake is kind of a data warehouse company, um, and they went public with what 155, no, 165, It was insane. Like it's insane, right? 170% net retention. Um, we were kind of spending a little bit of time prepping and thinking like, who else actually? So I came up with UiPath. I think they also had a you know pretty in, in, insane net retention rate. Slack I, possibly. Slack. I've, so by the way, I'm, I'm not sure what the net retention rate of, of service now is. Also kind of a massive company, by the way. Uh, but their gross retention rate is 99%, by the way. Different topic, different different day time. We can talk about this another time, but um, um, you know why 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 is kind of net retention rate kind of a thing that uh, is coming up now? Actually, kind of if, if if we look you know further back than just the oh you know cash crunch, everything is difficult. Olofo, what do you, what do you think is coming up now? I have some theories, but I think at the end of the day, it's uh, <clears throat> I think investors have started to put a lot of premium on NRR. Basically, is this business able to generate revenue in a self-sufficient way yeah. without the reliance on, uh, yeah, new customer acquisition? And I just noticed that over the last, you know, five years almost, that the companies I was working in, the emphasis on the NRR became actually on parity with the tracking of the ARR. So, in, in the companies that I've been in, we rank sort of the level of hierarchy of the numbers and what we care about. Yeah. And NRR actually was put on que completely equal terms with. ARR and the growth of that. Yeah. And I mean, so almost from an investor's perspective, right? If you kind of look at this clinically, it's almost like, a, okay, if I were to cut all the sales and marketing expenses, yeah. would I still be growing? Or is this a depreciating asset? And the thing is, if you have an attention rate, at, you know, to a degree, it's theory. Obviously, you're not going to grow like for the next 100 years, 150% uh, or 50%, right? Um but uh, to a degree, it's kind of that's that's one of the main ideas here, is right? Kind of the you could make this thing extremely profitable extremely quickly by taking out sales and marketing expenses, and mm -hmm. you would still have a growing asset behind it, right? So I think that's pretty crazy, pretty cool, actually, if you're able to pull this off. Um, I think the other reason really is also, um, and you know, this is what I thought you're gonna say. You know, we went from sending out CD-ROMs. Uh, to install the software on your on your I don't know on your local server to SaaS and subscription right which basically like the same thing as the CD-ROM but instead of everything up front for five years you now pace it out monthly or annually over five years um, and we went into and this happened in the last two or three or four years actually where more and more companies went to usage-based pricing right yeah and um, and you know that kind of pricing structure, it opens itself a little bit up for being almost abused for net retention rate. Mm -hmm. <coughs> Do <Yeah>. you? <laughs> <laughs> Do no, you but have, I mean, you have a question. No, or? the the question is, and I don't know, kind of for you to comment on this is actually uh, when you think about uh, usage based pricing, um, what what are kind of upsides on it? What are you know downsides on it? You know, yeah. maybe some people are starting to hate it, some people are starting to love it. What's your perspective on this? Well, I think kind of circling back a little bit, uh, you know, the way that these companies are able to achieve these crazy NR numbers that at least historically have not been, you know, companies have not been able to achieve is that there is sort of a new element, which is the user-based pricing, I think is one of them. <clears throat> 
PLG or self-service is sort of also part of that. Mm-hmm. But it means that you are basically getting companies in to subscribe to, you know, what is the purpose of the platform and signing uh, people up with basically no usage on a very low fee. And then as soon as they start to actually use the platform and we can take Snowflake here, mm-hmm. you don't get any value from Snowflake until you start to stream data into the platform and you start to do all sorts of things, right? That's the usage-based part of that. Yeah, I think I think kind of we're almost going a little bit into the hacking area here, right? Yeah. Uh, I think one one item just I wanted to tick off before, right? On the usage-based pricing, I think one of the tricks here, or I you know fundamental ideas of it, is actually to um, almost up on signing the customers, creating kind of a mini handshake on yes, if you use this more, you will be paying me more, right? In many cases, when you have a, a full-on SaaS subscription, um, take on, you know, I don't know, Salesforce or whatever you might have, sure there's seats and so forth, I need to go and, you know, buy them in a really difficult manner, by the way, maybe someone from Salesforce is listening to fix that. Um, but uh, it's it's more of a, you still, you still have an order form, you still need to sign it, it's still a process. Usage-based pricing is almost like a frame, framework agreement that yes, when you click this button too many times, then we'll just bill you. Uh, and, and, you know, that invoice, we already agree that if you use it, if you derive the value from it, that invoice will come. Yeah, but I think that's ultimately the point is that <clears throat> the reason why you're happy to take it is because you will be happy to pay whatever the use is. Because the usage means that you're getting the value. And with upfront agreements, you basically have to sort of buy into the premise of what you've seen on the demo or the trial. I might be able to get this utility out of it. And in the next 12 months, you have to estimate how many users and how much of it you yeah. will need. and then that might or might not happen. So there's just a lot more guesswork involved in that. And also you have to pay the amount up front. So it's also just, yeah. um, that's a little bit different. So, so it's usage is more of a handshake to say, if you need it more than you think, then you'll just pay a little bit more. If you need it less, you'll pay a little bit less and that's okay. But I also think there's a kind of a downside to that approach because it's really, um, uh, and we've seen this now in the last two years actually, usage base is great when times are great. I think that I, I recently saw a graph and maybe I need to pull this up at some point, but usage-based companies were outgrowing SaaS or normal subscription companies by a nice clip uh, in the last five years or something like that. Yeah, That completely reversed in the last two years, by the way, right? Yeah. So this whole uh, notion of easy upsell is also matched by very easy downsell at the same time. If yeah. you have annual commitments on the SaaS side, you can't just quickly kind of jump out of these, right? Yeah, and actually... Just a fun way to think about it is actually that, <clears throat> and I've done this in sort of every company I've been in, which is to calculate out the annual churn rate, just what is the raw loss of dollars in that period of time. And then I calculate something else, which is, you know, I called it operational churn, which is basically how many customers left us who could leave us. So you wouldn't actually calculate the renewal of a customer with a three-year agreement or a two-year agreement because you couldn't actually lose them. So what is the real amount of dollars that choose to leave the building given the chance? Mm. And if you think about user space revenue, that is simply a customer who has 365 days to cancel, minimize, downsell with yeah. you all the time. Yeah. And that just brings your you know, churn basically into it being a very volatile number probably. And when the bad times hit, what are you going to be doing? You're going to take all the contracts that are not full upfront year and you're going to be decreasing those services. Yeah. So I lived through that period, by the way, fantastically with uh, you know one, one of the companies I worked at. Um, I joined them in March 2020, uh, and you know what happened there? It's like COVID pandemic hit, and I joined a software business, which, you know, that sounds like a great idea, right? I mean, that can only go in one direction. The problem was our customer base was 
small restaurants, hotels, cafes, and so forth. And uh, yeah, we had wonderful usage-based pricing with these guys. Uh, that that didn't go so well. And anyway, the story ended in a, in a nice way eventually. But that can be the downside of usage-based pricing, right? And people just need to be aware of that. I think, though, there are a couple of items that we will uh, actually talk about lifting out of this that you can use in order to, you know, hack your net retention rate. Obviously, kind of the real way to improve your net retention rate, build a better product, build a better engagement pro uh, uh, model, build, you know, all kinds of other things. We're talking about something that you can do maybe on the revenue operations side. But before we go there, actually, um, you know, why why is it actually such a good idea to, you know, focus on net retention rate right now, right? Why is besides the historic pieces and besides all of those investors being super interested in it, why right now is everyone actually kind of focusing so much on net retention rate? Yeah, I think there's, uh, <clears throat> at the end of the day, it boils down to the difficulty and the cost of driving a new base dollar has gone up. When you're on a tough economic climate, it simply means that it's harder to go out and buy a revenue dollar. The tolerance for how much you're paying for that revenue dollar has also gone down. People were happy with very high CAC paybacks in, you know, let's just say 12 months from uh, 12 months ago, while today they're not. So there's a decreased appetite for buying new dollars. And I think the cost of acquisition is going up because it is a harder environment now to sell software. There's yeah. just no doubt about it. Even if you take that out of the equation, the historical cost of acquiring a additional revenue dollar from an existing customer is basically a third of acquiring a new dollar. Mm. Obviously, difference between companies and all of that, but that's sort of what the benchmarks have been telling us the last few years. So, if you wouldn't, if you were just buying dollars on the market, you would buy the you know the upsell dollar every single day of the week. And the reason for that is super simple: is that behind the new base dollar, you will have outbound, you will have partnership managers, you will have all of the cost of marketing, and then basically a fourth of the total acquisition cost is going to come from your AE closing team. And on the upsell dollar, you will have an account manager possibly that you will factor into the cost of acquiring that dollar. And that's you it. know, that's a fourth of the cost because now you don't carry any marketing dollars, there's no outbound, there's no you know SDR team sitting there making phone calls. So that's kind of how it really boils down. No, absolutely. And uh, I think there's also another component to it is um, I think CFOs, when they think about uh, where to spend more, I think once you already have an established relationship with someone, if they already know that this thing is kind of working for them, if they already trust you as a vendor, it's a much easier uh, way to kind of, uh, you know, agree to spend more money if there's, a, if there's a business case for that, obviously. If you have a new vendor relationship, you know, none of these things are actually there. You need to kind of push through a lot of these other pieces to then still get to the, oh, okay, it's worth the risk to kind of sign up with a new customer, right? So, yeah. and I think this is also some of the reason why, you know, people are talking about, you know, CAC payback kind of going down right now. The reason for that is kind of twofold, but they're kind of conflicting in a large degree. I think people are spending a lot less money on the super expensive channels right now. Yeah, That's why, you know, that is going down. But at the same time, we see conversion rates uh, dropping. We see uh, discounts increasing. We see sales cycles pushing out. Yeah. Basically, on the opposite side of this CAC efficiency, we see it actually going in the wrong direction as well. Yeah. So it's really, you know, even even the stuff that used to work is actually now more uh, more heavy to kind of, you know, get done and therefore gets more expensive, right? So it's, yeah. yes, people are spending less on the new acquisition side, but acquiring has actually got even less efficient uh, in general. Yeah, and I think CFOs in general are defensive today. So that's kind of the core reason of it. Let's protect what we have and let's try to get more from what we have already. Mm -hmm. And ultimately, at the end of the day, the tech valuation dropping by 60 or 70%, that means that every dollar 
that you are now acquiring will have a much lower multiple. So you're just not willing to spend as much to get that new dollar. Yeah. I think that math is a little bit, uh, uh, maybe you kind of need to talk through this math real quick. Um, so uh, obviously all the venture capital stuff, the idea is that you fuel revenue growth. Why do you fuel revenue growth? Well, it's because the eventual exit uh, valuation is going to be based on that revenue number, right? If you have an average exit uh, multiple of 10 or above, you're kind of totally okay to spend a lot of money on acquiring that additional next customer, right? Um, if um, if it takes you, I don't know, uh, you know, five years to pay back that one customer acquisition, but you get a 10x return in the public market, you totally should do that. You should 1000% do it. Obviously, there's some other economics to it. But generally speaking, that was the idea, right? If we get such a large multiple, then uh, that is actually the ceiling for how much money we should be spending. And, even and that, that now completely like deflated. Yeah, but even before that, if you're looking at an A round, having done seed, getting to those revenue dollars, getting a higher valuation gets you more dollars in the door now that you can deploy. So it is a little bit of a yeah. sort of house of cards, if you will, that's kind of being pushed forward and forward and forward. Yeah. And now that the evaluation has dropped, now you just have to go back to paying less for revenue. Yes. And what is the best way to do that? Upselling to existing customers. That's it. Um, so I think this is where a lot of that really is actually coming from and kind of has been, has been driven towards. I think, by the way, in reality, I don't think... Just because people sit in a boardroom and be like, mm, what's the cheapest revenue channel? Oh, it's net retention rate. Let's do more of that. It doesn't mean that suddenly, uh, you know, the focus and all of that is actually yielding many upsides here, right? I, I don't see I don't see companies suddenly snapping from 105 to 120. Actually, very much the opposite. They're going from 105 to 95 or whatever. Yeah. You could now argue, well, you know, if they hadn't focused on that, would it be even worse? I'm not so sure, actually. I think there's a lot of focus on that, yeah, for sure. But it's, I don't think it's changing actually much. I think the the overall, uh, you know, uh, ocean and the tide is just going the wrong direction. I think um, you you just like a, what a surfer on a paddleboard, kind of trying to paddle in the wrong direction here. And I think that's not going to work out. I mean, I think the actual metaphor is that the the tide lifts all boats or something yeah. like that. Yeah, I screwed that up a little bit. <laughs> There you go. Um, so that's why everyone is kind of focusing on net retention. Um, and what we wanted to talk to as uh, a long preamble here, like what is it, 20 minutes? I'm sorry for that. But uh, what we wanted to talk about is like some like ways you can, you know, potentially tweak some of this stuff. Some of that has a downside, some of that has an upside, um, but that's kind of what we want to talk about today. So Olafur, how can we influence net retention rate? You know, what comes to mind? Well, as you mentioned in the intro, uh, net retention is a calculation coming from how much did you sell in additional dollars and how many dollars did you lose? And I think on the how many dollars can you lose, how can we prevent those dollars from leaving the house? I think you have a limited sort of range of uh, options to figure that out. And I think it ultimately comes down to, to the utility of the product. I think that it's not the super controllable. Yeah. I think I think also, uh, you know, on the, on the GRR side, the churn side, I think, um, you know, giving discounts to customers and stuff could be also a way to, you know, have a downsell instead of a churn, right? Yeah. There are some ways. It's really tricky to figure out how to do it, though, I think. Yeah. No, so that means that the biggest lever here is for upselling. And I think to some degree, you can also choose to what degree you are selling the value in the initial sale to try to engineer for a better post-sale upsell environment, if you mm -hmm. will. And what does that mean? 
it really means that you have to almost accept that you need to fill the basic requirement of that what this customer needs to find utility in your product, and you need to capture that utility through a revenue dollar. Meaning, you're not trying to explain all the features, all the modules, all the possible use in the organization you could use it. You're really trying to get it in on the base utility that it would provide value and that they're happy to accept, and then broaden out from there. Will you achieve the same thing if you just go through a lengthier sales process and, and do more stakeholder management to include more people in the process? You possibly could. That is capturing the value up front. So basically a way to do that would be to engineer your you know, new business strategy also to try to figure out, can I introduce a limited part of my platform? Can I figure out what would be a good entry-level yeah. product that we could actually use to get someone in the door? And when we sell them on the high-value uh, product lines, that that will all fall on the upsell because it happens post the initial signature. Yeah. Because what is a customer? It's anyone who pays you one dollar or more for many periods of time. That's basically what it is, right? So, um, and now people are always going to say, "So wait a minute." So I'm just going to take the smaller deal and then hope for the upsell versus the money in the first case. Is that's 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 the big idea? No, you have to accept <coughs> that if an AE is selling something and he would go out and get all the use cases in the company. He would find all stakeholders who would find relevance in your product, and he builds up all the you know features that would actually provide utility, and he captures all of that. You're looking at a very lengthy sales process. Do you believe that that organization has that need? You have to accept that upfront, and now you're just having a bigger risk to the deal. It takes longer, and you might land or you might not, but that's basically now become all new revenue dollars, which yeah. in many cases has been what people have been optimizing for. Let's capture the absolute maximum value upfront. But if you accept that you can go out and explain to those stakeholders, find those use cases, and broaden it out, whether you do it after the initial signature or after that, why would it be any more challenging to do after the initial sale than it is upfront before you've gotten any commitment from that organization? So if you truly believe you can find those use cases, find those stakeholders, and sell those features, whether you do it upfront or after the sale should be technically the yep. same. No, absolutely. So I think um, basically kind of what we're saying is you could consider selling a smaller ticket to begin with, right? The upside is you will have a higher conversion rate. Um, you will have shorter sales cycles uh, and you obviously will have a lower ACV. Um, out of those higher conversions now, you will have a couple of more customers for lower ACV and your boss might not like that. You know, we had mm -hmm. that example. Um but now you have a team of customers that, uh, you know, where the full value hasn't been deployed to yet, mm -hmm. where you can then expand on adding more value over time and then capturing that value then also uh, financially, right? What that means though, uh, and you know, we had a, a conversation with uh, Leah on this whole PLG aspect on, on our podcast the other day. And I was mm -hmm. basically asking the same question. Why would you, why would you do that in the first place? And I don't, by the way, don't think maybe, you know, uh, anyway, it's a different topic. I think the, the realization is that you need to change large parts of your organization to then actually also optimize for that, right? So mm -hmm. if you incentivize the AE only on the new base number, um, then, you know, what will happen? That guy or that lady will try and maximize the deal as much as possible, right? Kind of that that will be a reality. Um, if, uh, if you, you know, administer this differently, organize differently, you will then need to figure out how that AE then is, you know, furthering that conversation. Yep. You know, not stopping here, but then pursuing the upsell to a degree mm -hmm. uh, in order to, you know, then fully use, uh, you know, get to the full utility of the deal, right? Yeah, and I think a really 
kind of closer to earth kind of way of describing this is that you, let's just say you have a PLG motion, so you go like, well, I did all the things, they're going to upsell better, I'm, I've optimized it enough. But within the PLG motion, do you actually allow salespeople to jump into a trial that is being conducted by a large organization who potentially has the power to buy more if you were to talk to them and sell mm -hmm. them on a bigger use case? Should you now have sales-assisted PLG, for example, and jump in there, or should you actually let the trial conclude, get to the you know mm -hmm. ninety buck you know visa transaction, and then begin that process? Mm -hmm. That is you now deciding, and that tr trial might only last two weeks, and you've only really optimized for now increasing the revenue dollars on that account, which you could have also done you know two yeah. weeks later. So that is where it's really close to reality of like why. Unless the salespeople getting involved both gets higher ACV and higher conversion, I would actually say let them get to the conversion that we if we if it's on par, which mm. you know, I've seen PLT perform better than sales yep. assisted in many cases. Yep. Let it run its course and then do what you would have done otherwise with those sales assisted. Just do that after the credit card transaction has been yep. you know processed. Okay, so that's kind of the easy the easy ticket in, right? Maybe a part of the platform, maybe um, uh, maybe you know a reduced version of it, maybe not all the seats to begin with, and so forth, right? And then unlocking that value over time. Yeah, and I think also part of that is creating a frictionless way for the customer to upsell themselves. I think yeah. that's another big piece. Uh, sometimes I get lost in this is to try to create framework agreements with, you know, and sometimes it's called true up. Basically, as I use more, I will be trued up and invoiced mm -hmm. on that fact. Can I administer new, new users in the admin panel? Can I have something where I understand the, the data and what yeah. I'm using and how much I would be paying if I used more? Create something that is automatic upsells. Yeah. I think what uh, HubSpot is doing here, and they're doing this extremely well, is actually that... Um, they are, I'm not sure if it's still the case, but obviously on their marketing uh, product, the idea has been that uh, number of emails is what's basically driving the cost. It's the right? number of contacts, yeah. So contacts Whatever. equal emails, yes. yeah. Um, and um, uh, you basically kind of go into the conversation and say, "Hey, I have like 10k in my in my database, and that's what you're being priced on, priced yeah. on." And then as you add more next year for the renewal, then they kind of threw you up, yeah, exactly. Again, right. And basically, what they're doing is if you opt to have not a uh, an annual contract, but a quarterly one, they will actually true you up on every quarterly renewal then, right? And the trick here is not to say like, ah, okay, usage-based pricing, now you have, uh, you know, more or less users or, uh, you know, usage. What they're actually doing is they're locking you into the next tier all the time, right? So yeah. what they're creating is, you know, only the upside of usage-based pricing, minus the downside of it by kind of continuously locking you in. And, yeah. and they're doing it in a way where it's basically automatic, right? Kind of, you kind of, you have to kind of go with it. Otherwise, what you're facing is a very difficult conversation with the HubSpot account manager, by the way. That's, I think that's also another trick that I learned at least from HubSpot is um, all the discounts that you're negotiating. Did you know that actually? All the discounts that you're negotiating with HubSpot, they're only valid for the contract period, which is usually just a year. Yeah, no, I don't, didn't know that. So what that actually means is um, you need to then, you know, up on renewal, go to the HubSpot account manager and beg him to keep the deal that you had originally on the table. You're betting on inertia. <laughs> no, you're betting on, I think what they, I mean, they're this, this, Just no, don't they're, do they're anything. Kind of, they're, kind of smart, they're kind of smart people, but if you think about it, um, uh, implementing any kind of tool, right, um, there's a lot of felt cost, that you have in order to implement the tool, mm -hmm. then there's the price on top of that. Up on renewal, 
that that chunk of the cost, which is like implementation, that kind of falls away. But there's a switching cost. And then on top of that, you would have, a, you know, you're locked in. Then there's a switching cost on top, right? Kind of yeah. that kind of goes on the other side of the equation now. And they're kind of, I don't know, smartly, cheekily, or assholishly kind of, uh, um, you know, capitalizing on that exact kind of behavior there, right? Yeah. And again, if you are able to build a contractual structure like that, guess what? You will have upsell again, right? I think a, uh, and, you know, I did this uh, in the past quite a lot, um, basically kind of offering a, th a free period for a little bit. Um, so, I mean, this would basically be kind of a two-month, three-month free period on the on the 12-month term. And then up on renewal, that wouldn't happen anymore, right? We sometimes call that an introduction or something like that. Yeah. So if you're paying 1000 a month, you got a 12-month contract, three months for free, you would pay 9000 effective in the first year. And then you would automatically have a 3K uh, upsell at the end of that period. Yeah. That's So that's how that can work, for example, yeah. right? Um, but this is those are some of the different you know hacks in terms of thinking about net retention rate yeah. that we've seen actually working pretty well, and I think um, especially thinking about this discounting piece, you know, I think I'm not sure who said it, but if you give a 20% discount, it's equivalent to 20% churn. But people are handing out discounts left and right all the time while not really thinking about oh wait a minute that's that's actually a crazy crazy amount of money here that we're leaving on the table. What people should be optimizing for is to try and create a scenario where discounts uh, are not perpetual, but where they are one-off, right? And sometimes you can't, by the way, don't get me wrong, so I'm not as, as delusional in this sense. But if you if you have sales reps that are you know frequently giving out discount, you should actually try and structure it in a way where you know they give different ways of discount at first, and maybe the one-off could be further down the list. And only the perpetual 20% is kind of the last thing that they go to, right? Kind of create yeah. a little bit of a hierarchy or kind of hoops to jump through for the for the buyer, actually. Yeah. And I think another thing to think about is also, and this is something I did in my past, which was to look at ways to improve upsell and churn, but at the same time also recognizing that you will have different types of company in your customer base that will have different churn patterns, yeah. different upsell patterns. Yeah. And actually engineering the sale to businesses that have very positive retention rates and have very positive upsell rates, you would obviously have to look at if you're paying more on the new business side to acquire them. But on the whole, I did not find that, that the relationship was massive because it usually means, you know, lower churn and higher upsell means it's a really good product fit for that type of company. And that could be based on industries or size. And and we all know that enterprise churns, you know, vastly different than SMBs. So looking at the pattern of your current customer behavior and then just saying, hey, we just should buy more of those if we can, that is overall just changing the composition. Should you still optimize the way we deal with it and how we optimize it? Yes. Would you would you change the commission plan of an AE actually around it? I most likely <coughs> would not, but this is in the context where I have mostly worked with AEs who can't control the influx of deals to their pipeline. They don't, they don't, they can't control what marketing deals come in. They can't control what the SDRs are booking. So they would be trying to control for stuff that I wouldn't expect them to have control over. Yeah, no, I, th I think that's right. Kind of that's kind of, um, let's just say, violating that principle, right? But we have seen that, uh, and I think we've seen this as agencies versus proper businesses. Yeah. <laughs> uh, agencies buy faster, buy quicker uh, in terms of like they make the decision real quick. Yeah. Uh, but they also churn faster, right? And um, they, I think there's an argument to be had depending on you know how you structure your newbie side. Obviously, I think there's an argument to be had to say like you know what, listen, um, 
this deal was also easier for you to close. Uh, maybe there's a ding here on the on the commission side. I'm not sure. We haven't done it. We've discussed it a lot, you and I, uh, yeah. but we never actually executed. I think it's expecting some kind of sophistication on the AE side of thought process that they can actually you know achieve. I don't know that that would fit in a comp plan. I would. I generally would not try to do that. Honestly. There you go. I don't know. Um, no, I mean, so then you know, what about SDRs? You know, maybe agencies are easier to book. But that is what I have done. Uh -huh. I have paid different amounts for different uh, verticals, yeah. for different sizes of businesses. Very happy to do that. Yeah, for different sizes as well. Yeah, very yeah. happy because they can completely control that. Uh, one learning on the different sides. And again, right, this is all leading to, you know, your net retention rate. And maybe some of these things are actually less so hacks than there are like real, real kind of solutions to that. Um, so I had a scenario where I paid SDRs more per meeting booked um, as the size of the company increased, right? Mm -hmm. So if it was below 50 people, it was that. If it was below 250, it was that. And then we did like, well, if it's a thousand or, a thousand or above, it's, you know, even more than that. What we realized was that the plus thousand stuff didn't convert at all, actually. So we, because, you know, the product wasn't there, maybe the sales reps weren't there, maybe the company wasn't there. But basically kind of what we then ended up doing is kind of we had a nice bell curve in the end. It's like, uh, you know, the easy stuff in the bottom, we want it. We don't want you to just throw it away, but uh, we're going to only give you like, I don't know, 50 bucks for that. Yeah. Really, our sweet spot is maybe 150 to 500. That's, yeah. the, that's the realm we want to book. No, but I think this is coming out of the, <clears throat> maybe the, ICP wasn't clearly defined. So you were actually going after enterprises while the product is a mid-market product, then mm. then optimizing for that, even though you got the three deals that closed at really high ACVs, it really doesn't make sense to optimize for large businesses. I went all the way once with, you know, creating account score, so factoring in with machine learning, like what are the best industries plus the different size, you know, within those industries, and then you could give an arbitrary score to it and pay different than that. It was a little bit too complicated, so, you know, we went away from that. But yeah, you know, in theory, yes, you would. No, but I mean, one way to uh, to operationalize this, you would just um, you would just give those accounts A, B, C, D, mm -hmm. and then that's say we we're paying the most for the A's, yes, and then that's what we did exactly. But actually, anyway, so I, you know, I, I would almost go with kind of the other direction. It's like, is it? Yeah. Anyway, let's not talk about this. Um, yes, uh, one one other non non great way to increase your net retention rate is by price increases. Yes. Have you ever done that? Yes. And uh, how did that turn out for you? No, I think, and I've seen many companies do this and it actually works really fantastic until it doesn't. Yeah. I liken it to basically you having sort of this Russian roulette, you have the revolver and you go another price increase, click, and you go, great, that worked. And you can do that exercise two or three times, but actually what you are at the end of the day doing is you're basically benchmarking the value of the product to what people are paying for it. And if you have a gap in that, that this product is more valuable than what they're paying, then a price increase will be accepted. And that will work for you now to increase your NRR and your upsell and all of that jazz. But the day where you start pushing a price increase that is not justified by the utility of your product that's when you will start to have a churn event. And all of a sudden, this will have a very negative effect on your NRR. And this is why I say, like, unless I'm the pricing expert in that company and I'm doing the pricing and packaging and I have some absolute market research to support my theory about why it should be priced at a higher rate, I don't do it in a vacuum. I, yeah. would, not, I would not. 
I think there are smart ways to go about it and then there are really stupid ways to go about it. Uh, I've done the stupid way once or twice and it worked, luckily. Uh, basically, you go in and say everyone is going to pay 5% more. So this was on an SMB product. So really they paid us um, maybe 70 euros a month or something like this. 5% is like, I mean, you know, who knows? I mean, it's like... I bet you someone said, well, we haven't increased our price in three years and just with inflation... That is justified. Yeah, yeah. No, I use that word. Yeah, Good yeah. luck having an account manager calling for someone to pay for the past three years yeah, inflation. Yeah. <laughs> no, I think, um, so we, we've done that and it worked out, by the way. It worked out actually pretty okay. Um, I think I think where you go into the red zone is if you do it multiple times per year um, or if you do it without truing up the product on the side as well, right? Yeah. Kind of That's where you kind of run into those issues. Another issue with the across the board 5% is also... Um, you might have sold some people on a discount and some people not on a discount. Yeah. And now you're kind of, you know, in in parallel, kind of penalizing them even differently because someone got a discount before. And there are a couple of areas where then this um, price increase just doesn't doesn't function that well. But I actually have a question for you because this is something that I have never figured out the solution to. It says contractual price increases. Mm. Basically either based on an index or it's just 4% every single year, uh, having that baked into the contract can often, be, can often be achieved. But then, you know, has that worked for you? Because I've also been in companies that had them in the contracts and chosen to just not do it because they're afraid of the consequence. So it's just an option, if you will. It's not an actual no, consequence. No, it feels, it feels very old school. I haven't seen that in kind of newer contracts like that. Um, I've seen the opposite, though, that... Um, Companies that you know in the contract was like it's capped to three percent a year maximum or something like that. Kind yeah. of, I've seen it like that. I also wouldn't do this, by the way. I think that's also not the you know I would just not talk about it. I think you know having the the option to increase your price, I think you should have it. And again, that's the dumb way. The smart way is to really think about pricing and packaging. And by juggling this around and by creating different packages, different offerings. Um, basically kind of creating different value and then through that, through smartness, increase your price in that sense, right? And and some companies have pulled this off extremely well. And, you know, a large point also is um, many, many companies in healthy times, not right now, they have been increasing their ACV, uh, you know, every year consistently. Um, and they've done that a lot also through price increases and they were able to back them up and not kind of lose people behind it, right? No, but that's also the logic of, size in general is that we have a product today it's gonna be 10 times better five years from now or whatever amount it should cost more at that point right mm -hmm. your acvs in general should be expected to go up over time if that premise holds true yeah and that's why you know i think it is logical to have some way to kind of extract that value and maybe you just say if you're grandfathered in on the old price but we do need to kind of have some mm -hmm. stepping stones to kind of extract that value right mm -hmm. no absolutely um do we actually, so I don't think we have, but do we have like a, a do and don't or something like that? Uh, I think uh, I have one that I've seen a lot, which is people fudging the calculation behind NRR. Ah. Um, basically looking at, well, we started the year with 10 million revenue. We upsold, I don't know, let's call it, you know, 5 million or whatever. And then calling that delta the, you know, the upsell rate against a churn number. But with that, what you're actually doing as well is that you are calculating in the upsell to customer who are not part of the cohort at the start of the year. So anyone you sell in January, February, March, April, June, and so on and so forth, 
who then just you know three months later buys more users, you're actually not measuring the true retention rate. So basically, out of the let's just say a hundred customers who each had a million, how many net retained dollars did we have after a year, and how many were we able to sell to them in addition? During that year, that is your true NRR as I see it. That's it's a cohort, the, fully full cohort based. Absolutely, right? because if you do the other one, you can start to basically sort of have these short-term hacks kind of influence stuff where it's not on that cohort and it does not at all speak to your ability to retain and harvest more revenue over time. AKA, what the reason for this number to exist? That meaning has now been somewhat lost. Yeah, I. Do you think differently or? Yeah, it's a little bit like, um, you know, funnel conversion rate and cohort conversion rate. If you're like really kind of going to that direction, I think, I think both of them, you know, in both of them have value, by the way, I think both of them will probably over time show a very similar or the same number. Um, I think what you want to see if you're really doing like a churn analysis, you probably want to see the different cohorts and how they're kind of ideally getting better and better and better and, you know, maybe increasing and that's where you might see that. Yeah. But at the end of the day, you also... You're not going to answer the question by saying, okay, uh, what's your NRR? And then you say like uh, 95%, 105%, 107%, 111%. You want to have like one number that you're kind of having over the time. Right? And the way to calculate that from a standardization standpoint is the way I described it. And you could look at the same thing. I just described the churn or the operational churn. So mm. how many people could leave us? It's like nobody cares. If you have two-year contracts, you will benefit in a churn number. Good luck. Thank you for that. That's fantastic. That's one of the things you buy with to your contracts. But I want to kind of see how many leave us, who can choose to leave us. But then you should call it a different name. So now that we have, oh, we have, uh, we have a question here. Sorry. Yeah. We do. And actually, I think we're going to ask uh, them to come on live here. Awesome. Yeah, Gail. <laughs> that is a name. Hi, right. guys. Can you hear me okay? Yes, we can. Awesome. Hi, Olafur. Hi, Tony. Hey. Hey, man. Thanks for the show. It's great. Um, so it was, it's a small question going back a few steps to what you're talking about for, uh, kind of segmenting, um, comp to SDRs on like ABCD stuff. Um, just like a, the question around, okay, how do you actually audit if an A customer or an A account is actually an A account? Like you, I've heard SDRs say, actually LinkedIn says it's a thousand people, but zoom in says it's 10,000 people. There's a subsidiary here, whatever, whatever. Are there, can you guys speak in some good ways yeah. of mitigating that kind of like trust problem that you get with the with, with that kind of differentiation? Because it makes sense to incentivize your, your SDRs to go after the big fish, if that's what your, what your ICP is. But how do you kind of make sure that those are actually your ICP? Well, it's funny coming from you, Egil, because you are the one who actually, I think, was part of introducing the uh, sort of account-based score to comp on the basis of a uh, account score. Yeah. And I think at the end of the day, you then yeah. we boil that down to A, B, C, D. Yeah. But I think at the end of the day, I believe that the whole point is that the SDRs are not making the determination of the quality of the account. Yeah. That is really, I think, at the end of the day, you need to have RevOps sit there and say, hey, to our best of abilities, what we see in the past, these are either the likeliest to close or will retain the best. And that's why we value them higher than the other accounts. And that is maybe just size or it's several elements. But that needs to be centrally governed and, you know. I think, you know, this is one of those things where you shouldn't let them change that kind of field, right? I think that's kind of really important. Yeah. But I think at the same time, you should also have like a process of, you know, rebuttal, 
right? Where someone says like, eh, actually, they're now a thousand and five. Okay, uh, we did so that. We did that, and you end up in a yeah, that was, competition yeah. on a daily basis. I don't want to have it. <laughs> no way. Exactly. <laughs> that's, that's like SDR comp is not worth that that headache. But but it, but it's like yeah, I, I get the point of, of centrally governing it, and I guess it's just a matter of of kind of putting your foot down and being like, well, this is how it is. This is how we've decided. This is the data source we trust. But but I, I guess it, you kind of have to think that into the culture of your SDR team. Yeah, and if yeah. you went for the C account and you feel like it's an A account, you should just be like, why are you fishing in the C pond here? There are a ton of A companies, B companies. Why are you trolling for C companies trying to convince me it's an A company? Yeah. It's a I think something like that you could also uh, outsource to the manager of that team, by the way. Uh, depends on your trust relationship with that person over that, yeah. that leadership <laughs> team. But I mean, this is, you know, you want to have some of those conflicts resolved on that level instead mm -hmm. of always bringing it to a central spot of like revenue ops where then someone says, computer says, no, 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 no we can't have it. The manager doesn't want to say no. So now the manager comes to you. You just, you're just delaying that conversation. You're not, usually not achieving a lot. Yeah. But let's see. That's funny. Yeah. So I actually never had that problem. Uh, it was just black and white. That's what it yeah, fucking is. You're a pretty intimidating guy, Tony. People just accept it. <laughs> but that's, that might be the key thing. Just just be more of a just intimidating be character. <laughs> yeah, just exactly. be grumpy next time. Yeah. yeah, absolutely. Thanks for the question. All right. Appreciate Thanks, it. guys. Perfect. I had another question, and I'm not sure if I now forgot it, actually. Um, you talked about do's and don'ts. Um, ah, uh, giving discount on multi-year deals. In yes. that context. Yes. I think... Ultimately, if you boil it down to the math, what you should always be happy to give as a discount on a multi-year deal is the churn rate. So if you have 10% churn and you give a 10% discount on the value, in terms of revenue dollars retained on the balance, you will basically be in a net positive and you will have optimized a metric called churn that is going to make you look better to an investor. What if you have 115% net retention? Then I would take the same thing. I would say, wait, what? You have 115? So net, I was, net I was, retention. Yeah, okay. So I was just saying, it's a company with 10% churn. So you're saying they have a 25% upsell. You would be willing to take... I'm just saying, if it's kind of not a um, usage base or something like that, why would you you know, lock someone in for two years and not then have the opportunity to upsell within? Depends yeah. on the contract structure, blah, this, blah, 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 I've blah. I've heard blah. this argument a thousand times. I just think you got to pick your battles here. Uh, do you value churn more than upsell? That's actually, at the end of the day, that's the question. And we always think the project is going to be so much better next year and we won't extract that value. But at the end of the day, I will always p pick mm. a three-year contract if I can, or two years for that matter, over a one-year. I actually don't necessarily disagree. I think there's also another thing that's not factored in here is also the, and it's harder to pinpoint, but the cost of the CSM trying to retain that customer, right? Yeah. And, or, you know, that comes with it, right? And what and, is the cost and of the 25% upsell that, percent you, upsell that yes. you will have on those accounts? There is, mm. there's, it's not coming in for free. Yeah. If you have them two years and you then don't mm. have maybe that upsell, no, I think, you would have I think to pay the, someone No, I think the upsell. real question is actually about could you also achieve that upsell even though you have a two-year deal? That's, that's yeah. really actually the question. Um, and if the answer is yes... I think, yeah, lock them in for uh, two years and give 10% discount or whatever. Um, if the answer is no, I think it's a bit more nuanced, actually. Yeah, yeah. If it's a pure price increase, you might say, well, we should be extracting that additional value yeah. in a year. But generally, it comes with the sale of uh, a new component, a new yeah. feature or a new user, right? There so. you go. 
Okay, I think we're kind of slowly coming up on time here, actually. Um, any uh, any parting words, Mr. Olafon? Any uh, no, I think challenging uh, questions that you want to uh, use to embarrass me here? No. I think it's just spend some time thinking about this. This is actually something that can have an extremely meaningful impact on the evaluation of your business. So if you think about how you're acquiring new customers, which type of customers are you acquiring that will then have a pattern after the sale? Overarchingly, this is just not a, well, we signed up all those customers, let's just try to work better with them and talk to them more and you know do tactics. It's actually not about that. Because in the opposite direction, you should also be looking at what is the type of customer who turns the mode. Let's try to buy less of those. It, it, it's not a post-sales problem only. This actually completely relates to your go-to-market. What kind of customers are you acquiring and are you going out actively acquiring, both on the positive and negative? Changing the composition of your customer base basically means that you're taking customers that you will be signing up who have a tendency to like your product more because they don't want to churn. So it's a better ICP fit at the end of the day. That's really what that means. Yeah. And if they want to buy more of it, aka upsell, that means the same thing. This is a natural fitting thing for that product. And I talked to sort of a growth growth guy who has been working for some massive companies, and he literally said, like, just slim it down to your top performing 20% type of users and companies who are upselling the best and retaining the best and simmer it down to just trying to go out and buy more of those. Really just always try to use that understanding at the very top end of your best users to just go out and, like, engineer your way through success through just going out and using that as your guiding light for what you're going to be going into the new base market and acquiring. Yeah. And I think there's some truth to that. I think there is. Okay, thank you, everyone. Thanks for participating. Thanks for joining. We had some issues with the LinkedIn Live. Uh, maybe you have noticed, but uh, that was Bart's fault. So it's okay. Uh, no, just joking. Okay, wonderful. Have a fantastic day and uh, see you next time. Bye.